You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to an emergency episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives. Joining me to make sense of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is cousin Marco Papich, the partner and chief strategist of Clock Tower Group. Thanks so much to Marco for coming in and doing this emergency edition. Happy to have Marco here to discuss war in Europe. It's really depressing to say those words. Um, But uh, if you need more insights about what's going on beyond this podcast, check us out at perchperspectives.com. Otherwise, take care. We'll see you out there. Cheers. Marco, how much of your 85-page report have you eaten since uh, the Russians (laughs) invaded Ukraine? (laughs) (laughs) I said I would eat it if... Ukraine joined NATO. <laughs> Is that? I you know, I was actually I was actually thinking about this. I have a basketball metaphor to start us off. You and I yeah. famously um, said that the Brooklyn Nets trade for James Harden was going to be an epic disaster and then we, it looked like we were wrong and that it was going to be the greatest team in history. And then they only played 16 games and now James Harden is away and the Brooklyn Nets experiment. I know over. where you're going with this. I love it. Please well, finish do the it. analogy. Complete the metaphor. Do it. The metaphor is we may have been wrong for 16 days, but constraints are going to bite Russia in the butt. You know, I, I'm actually writing a report right now and I'm flirting with the title In Russia, Constraints Overcome You is the title. <laughs> my, uh, so, so, but my hot take right now is uh, that. Russia's gone, congratulations to Putin, Russia's gone from being a great European power to China's gas station. Good job. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, uh, look, I mean, like things are moving and so on, but l- let me backtrack. Like my my view that a large scale invasion of Ukraine would not happen was based on a number of different things. First of all, Putin was getting what he wanted by just putting pressure on Ukraine, right? Yeah. Like destroying its economy, dividing the West, if he had done this for another three months, just like flirting with like 200,000 troops on the borders, um, could that not have accomplished kind of the same thing? That's the first issue. But the other reasons are material constraints to an actual conflict, like demographics, right? There's no pro-Russians in Ukraine. This is a myth. If you're a Russian speaker, it doesn't mean you're pro-Russian. Like Zelensky is a Russian speaker. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people who are Ukrainian who are native Russian speakers. And um, we saw in Donetsk and Luhansk, the most pro-Russian, most Russian ethnics, not just speakers, only 40% of the territory was captured by pro-Russian rebels. So there's clearly a huge resistance to Russia. How do you occupy a country like that? David Petraeus gave an interesting interview, uh, I forgot where, you know, people can Google it. And he said like, look, I mean, what we faced in Iraq, this is like 10 times worse for the Russians. You know, it's a motivated population. They're not demotivated like Iraqis were. There's nobody to welcome them, none, zero. It's not Crimea. And unlike the Iraqi uh, Revolutionary Guard, like these guys actually have just fought eight years of conflict against the pro-Russian rebels and they know how to fight. The second issue is geography, huge country. You know, like we talked, you and I, the shot troops come in and then some fresh-faced youth has to drive a truck to bring the toilet paper to the Spetsnaz. And he has to do that across 200 kilometers because Ukraine's bigger than the UK and Germany combined. Then also um, you have the fact that uh, the military in Ukraine, I mean, the the tactics they're playing right now, I think, uh, they just don't want to play the game, right? Um, They just don't want to play with the Russians. The Russians thought, we're going to roll the tanks in, they're going to meet us, we're going to have an epic cavalry charge, and it's over. (laughs) And the Ukrainians are like, oh, okay, cool story, bro. 
we're going to go back to the cities. And so they're now waiting for them, you know, clearly in the cities. And, and then Putin has this problem because his fourth constraint is domestic. There's nobody in Russia actually really wants this. They didn't expect it. They got caught by surprise. Uh, polls suggest that like, you know, maybe like 40% of Russians are okay invading Ukraine to keep it out of NATO, but it's not even clear that was imminent. Um, you know, now they're switching to this denazification like platform, which is so maximalist, it doesn't make sense. So I agree with you. This is, you know, Harden got traded and looked good for 16 games. And, you know, it's, it's about to get really bad and could be the end of uh, the Putin regime, I think. This, this, is, this is, could be his Cuban Missile Crisis like it was for Khrushchev. Yeah, I mean, the in some ways, the most, well, I mean, there have been so many surprising things, so I shouldn't say most surprising. But the protests in St. Petersburg and throughout the rest of Russia in the, in the last 24 hours, incredible. They're having to suppress all the news about it, it seems, in Russian press, but the videos are there on social media. I've been thinking about the fact that, you know, there's a generation of folks who have come of age, both in the United States and in Russia, for whom the Cold War didn't exist. And for whom the United States and Russia, these are not the big enemies and they don't want these big power conflicts. They just want the economy to work. They want to be able to do what they want to do without having to go to war over stupid geostrategic issues like this. Um, so I, I wonder if he really has miscalculated on that kind of level. But I, I think you'd agree, though, that in the short term, he's eventually going to take Kiev, don't you? Or, or do you, or, or you think he's not going to be able to do it? You know, I, I, I don't know. I think it's uh, look, I've, I've always been extremely skeptical of the myth of the of the of the russian might like there, we have no evidence of that we have zero evidence the russians know how to fight a war sorry like zero no if, if anything um, we have evidence of the opposite because even in georgia i mean georgia was a pitiful puny state compared to russians military but when you actually read um you know the reviews of what happened for those three or four weeks that they were in georgia it was so bad that they were having to you know use text messages to tell the aircraft what sites to hit that nothing actually worked for them on the ground well, and, you know, supposedly they, like, fix that. You know, cool. Mm -hmm. I get that. Um, it's, again, this is in Georgia, right? And so I don't know. I don't know what to say. Uh, there are unsubstantiated reports that they're bringing in, like, 10,000 Chechens to fight. <laughs> I saw that. You know, and, then, and, you know, like, that's, you know, but that's, again, that is the end. You know, because if they bring in Chechens to clear out Kiev, um, and for those of you who are not familiar with the IRL version, uh, they are the Uruk-hai <laughs> of, of IRL, uh, you know. And so my point is, like, look, if they bring in the Uruk-hai, like, the protests in St. Petersburg and Moscow, I mean, people will be aghast, you know. Like, I mean, and that's that's where this gets really messy and uh, and really bad. Um, I think that um, I think that not only do we not have any evidence, recent evidence, we also have evidence of Putin being very strategic and calculated. That's what's uh, interesting because a lot of people ask me, Marco, you know, like your constraint based framework is is basically saying that full scale invasion would be disastrous for for, for the Kremlin. Um, but what if, you know, Vladimir Putin has kind of lost his mind or something like that? And again, we don't have evidence of that. His uh, geopolitical ROI is high in Syria. Very small intervention yielded huge gains. Um, you could argue 2014 was also very calculated, you know, just stick to the parts of Ukraine that are going to welcome mm -hmm. uh, the intervention. Um, but if you go through history, and I don't know if we uh, talked about this uh, on our last pod, so stop me if we did, but like history of Russia, so 200 year history is replete with examples where offensive campaigns are disastrous. 
Yeah. Right. So, so starting with the Crimean War in eighteen in eighteen fifties, uh, that led basically. I mean, Nicholas first died in deathbed. Some say he was he's like killed himself because it was such a disaster. Um, and then Alexander II came in and had to emancipate the serfs, and he did all these reforms uh, after that Crimean War. He ended up being assassinated for it. Um, but that was a basically that was basically a revolution in in the Russian Empire. And then 1905, 1904, 1905, they fought the Japanese. They sent three different fleets successively to the Pacific Ocean, and the Japanese kept sinking them. And then that was such a shock domestically that, you know, a, a rising Asian power just beat the crap out of their three fleets, that there was a revolution in Russia in 1905, which was kind of like the first dress rehearsal for the Bolshevik Revolution. And Nicholas II had to give Duma powers in 1905 as a consequence of that. Then, of course, 1916, Vladimir Lenin's case for the Bolshevik Revolution, there were many cases, but one of them was that he revealed through these secret documents that Russia was promised by the UK and France that they would get territories in Poland uh, and serve the Austro-Hungarian Empire if they joined the fight. Mm -hmm. And so that First World War was then reinterpreted by the Bolsheviks, not as a defensive war, but as a war of imperial aggression by um, the Romanov family. And that led to the Bolshevik Revolution, of course. The 1980s, you have Afghanistan, where obviously that contributed to the fall of the Soviet Union because of the angst of all the people who were dying. And by the way, most people, not most, but there was like a larger percent of people from Belarus and Ukraine who were conscripted for that war that led to a lot of resentment in places like Minsk and, um, and Kiev. And then finally, in the 1990s, the, the Chechen War, the first Chechen War, mm -hmm. was basically the reason Yeltsin collapsed and Putin came in. So the same advantages that Russia has on defense, huge territory where it can always withdraw, it also plays really poorly for them on offense. They have to support these huge supply lines and, and, and their soldiers have to fight in regions that are so far away from the daily life of someone in Omsk or Novograd or Moscow or St. Petersburg that invariably the population of Russia is kind of isolationist and gets really mad. Anyway, sorry for that history soliloquy, but I think that this is something that like, I'm very surprised Putin hasn't thought through. Well, th I, I think that's, I think that's what I'll ask you then, because I mean, I, I, I think he's, I think they're actually probably going to be able to handle, well, I don't want to say that They'll, they're, they're probably going to get to Kiev. They're probably going to put mission accomplished on a banner and then the insurgency is going to begin and it's going to be absolutely horrible for them. I agree with all that, but the thing I still can't get my head around is, why why did why did putin do this like you said like we have all evidence that he's a pretty good strategic thinker he was getting most of everything he wanted anyway i mean i guess the one thing we could say and i've been getting the same kind of stuff as you have you know people sending me oh he's got an autoimmune disorder he's going to be dead in two years he cares about his legacy this that the other thing i guess it's possible but he's built an entire career on not doing that on always doing the yeah. smart thing and i i just don't get what he's seen, I guess you could make the argument that he knew that the West wasn't going to lift a finger over Ukraine. And he thought that he'd been able to insulate the Russian economy from the sanctions that were going to come that he just decided to take Ukraine. But that seems like a really short sighted point of view from somebody who's been fairly long term oriented his entire political career. Well, so first, you know, it's not clear that they are going to occupy all of you. Um, my number one war scenario. So I was 50-50. I was in the 50-50 camp. Mm -hmm. um, and of the 50% of like probability to evade, my number one scenario was the Georgia scenario. 
you know, and, and the reason that I flag that to clients and investors that I speak to as a really risky scenario is that in the initial stages of a 2008 Georgia scenario, that one is indistinguishable from a full um, occupation. Just like in Georgia, we didn't know, like, I mean, the tanks were outside of Tbilisi at one point. So that's why I think it's still premature to say that we now know it's an occupation of Ukraine. Because, you know, it could be a flex where Russia shows cases its awesome power to Ukraine, to the West, to other denizens of the former Soviet Union sphere, and then just pulls back to what it actually wants. Yeah, except it failed to do that. I mean, they still haven't even knocked out the Ukrainian Air Force. We got these things about the ghost of Kiev running around shooting down MiGs kind of at will. Like, it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. So, 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 and that's the danger, right? That, like, that, that failure that forces them to be like, okay, now, no, now we are good. So I agree with that. But I think, um, but, you know, there is, there is a way out of this. And, and the way out of this is, um, is pretty simple. Like, they put up a mission accomplished banner by just saying they've demilitarized Ukraine. Like, no, 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 no. We, you know, we just hit their military installations. We hit 75 of them, whatever, one day, 800 the next day, and it's over. Like, we have degraded Ukraine's military capability, which was what NATO said in 1999 with, with Serbia, right? During the 1999 NATO air war against Serbia, um, it was all about degrading Serbia's military capability. And after three months of bombing, when they finally stopped, the columns of Serbian tanks coming out of Kosovo were like days long because <laughs> they didn't hit a single one. They hit two tanks. I think NATO went back in and checked. And they, it, was a, it was a PR disaster in a way. But, you know, it was covered up in the West. It was like, no, nah, we won. Um, similarly here, like, you know, why can't Russia do the same? Why can't Russia simply say like, oh, look, we destroyed all their airports and runways and hangars and, you know, their cruise missiles. Proclaim victory, sit down with, uh, you know, with Zelensky as he has offered and talk about neutrality of Ukraine, which I genuinely think is a way to kind of create the new equilibrium that will satisfy everyone. You think they're going to let Zelensky remain president? It's, it seems to me that what they want is to get rid of Zelensky and put in some puppet in, in Kiev and back. But that's that again, way. I mean, I hear you. You know, I also want to have a six pack, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, as I often say, I mean, like, look, they, you know. Uh, they can like Zelensky can't be harmed. Obviously, I understand that Kiev can fall, all this stuff. But this is a country that cannot be ruled by puppets, right? I mean, it just can't. And that was the error in 2014 that we talked about before. He took Crimea and Donetsk and Luhansk out of Ukraine. That would be like taking Texas and Florida out of America and then trying to put a Republican puppet in charge of the United States. It's not going to work. You don't have enough like support. So. I think that whole denazification and that whole the whole theme of like regime change, mm -hmm. just how does it happen, Jacob? Like you would have to permanently occupy this country with mm -hmm. two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand troops. More than that. In, more than that. I mean, and I just I don't, you know. So I think the the only off ramp I see here, well, there's two off ramps really. One is like regime change in Russia, like surprise regime change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the other one is like. You know, that they just proclaim victory, say they degraded, uh, you know, Ukraine's military capacity. And then they tell Zelensky, like, look, we're going to send in the Chechens unless you sign neutrality. Like, can we can we have a deal on that front? And that's how I can see this end. Um, yeah, but so. just to push back a little, I I hear what you're saying, but I still don't understand then, then why Putin did it this way. Because just putting up a mission accomplished banner and saying you've degraded the Ukrainian military, I mean... 
is that really worth the economic damage, both the short term and long term this is going to do to Russia? They had made some progress here in the last eight years, diversifying their economy and trying to actually modernize and not just being the Slavic Saudi, Saudi Arabia. That's all gone now. And it's not like the West is just going to rescind the sanctions because now Putin wants to negotiate. They just saw what Putin's quote unquote negotiating looked like. So that's, you know, the problem with, with what you're saying is we are now, you and I are trying to like imbue rationality into a policymaker yes. who has miscalculated their material constraints. Now, to to explain, you know, like in the book I wrote and in like the framework I created, I always call it a framework. Like it's not a foolproof method. You're going to be wrong. You're going to be wrong because you, you describe material constraints that policymakers face. And we just did it, right? Demographics, mm -hmm. geography, military, history, blah, blah. And then you assume policymakers are going to be forced to follow those. But if they don't, it's okay. You were wrong initially. Like, Harden did go to the Nets and they did win 16 games. But then, as I said, you know, in Russia, constraints overcome you. Like, you, those constraints start biting. And so there's no way for you and me to really explain why he did it. He, mis he, he made a mistake. He made a mistake. He miscalculated. He thought the constraints were... Maybe he's surrounded by sycophants. Who knows what, what explains this act? But now they're starting to bite. Like right now, if those if your assessment of constraints was correct, there should be an outcome that's disastrous for the policymaker who mistook their material constraints. And I think that that's what's happening with Russia. I mean, I think it's very similar to the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis in a way. You know, Khrushchev, man, like if you look at Khrushchev's career like 1950s were just amazing you know yeah he, he did the sputnik he did i mean so many things like the korean war i mean i think that was pre him but that was also a big victory for them i think in the, in the, for the soviets i mean yeah like he was just crushing it Khrushchev was crushing it you know and uh he was writing high in the 50s american intelligence community was penning these documents about how russia was going to overtake us in terms of economic growth by like 1990s hashtag uh kind of like china uh, you know, let's leave that aside. But like, and then, you know, this happens. He sees this young kid, JFK. He's like, I'm going to crush him. You know, I'm going to freaking crush him. He goes hard. Americans stand firm. And, you know, two years later, he's the only Soviet leader who didn't die, you know, or was, I guess, replaced like, you know, Gorbachev, like, mm -hmm. ended. but like, he was retired two years later because of this. And I think that that's a really big warning right now for Russia. I mean, I think that they have misjudged their material constraints, and this is going to be bad. And, and what's funny about it, as I was writing reports and talking and talking to clients, I was using material constraints that are very like material, you know, demographics, military strength of Ukraine, blah, blah, blah. But the greatest one may be the median voter in, in Russia. And that's, you know, to your point, uh, the, the protests have been pretty significant. And you know, with the social media that we have and with how savvy Russian population is in using social media, it's just very difficult to paint a picture of, you know, Ukraine as like riven with Nazis. I mean, it's just like, you know, like no one's going to believe. I mean, like, most people are just not going to believe that. And they're not only not going to believe it, they're going to put up with it. But when you start having, you know, young men come back from the front dead because of that, I think that's a problem. Yeah. Well, let's let's play it out then a little bit based on what you're saying. So 
I, I was still sort of thinking that I'm, and I'm still, I'm, I'm being convinced by your argument, but I still feel like they're going to try and install someone in Kiev. I, I don't really see how they can let Zelensky go and still claim any kind of, um, any kind of victory whatsoever. Although maybe what you're talking about, you know, at home in Russia, that kind of prevents things. But it seems to me the flip side of this is that suddenly NATO is back from the dead and the EU is going to be really tight and have its own self-defense capability and Turkey is going to be back in NATO and maybe they're going to throw, you know, uh, Erdogan has gone from crazy ravings about the lira to NATO should be doing more to help Ukraine and talking about the Bosporus. Like, how do you feel about NATO and Turkey and Europe in the context of all this? You know, well, that's that's where just more puzzles, Jacob. Like, you know, um, Putin was on his way to getting so many things out of this, I think, very strategically. One of them was to split a NATO, um, and that was working. And I'm not sure that this really changes that trajectory. Hmm. You know, and the reason I say that is, um, U.S. played a role in instigating this war. You know, and that's not a popular view, and I want to sound like an RT journalist here. Okay. I don't think but, anyone will mistake you for an RT journalist. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the first part of this part is very <laughs> not RT. But let, let, let me put on my conspiracy theory hat. No, no. Listen, here's the thing. Um, you know, the U.S. basically has, you know, goaded Ukraine into a pretty aggressive posture. After 2014, France and Germany said, look, we're going to put Ukrainians into, onto the negotiating table with Russia. And they, they concluded a Minsk agreement, right? Mm -hmm. And it's deeply unpopular in Ukraine because one of the things that it basically does is it gives Donetsk and Luhansk, if it's ever implemented, kind of a veto to like international agreements and memberships like NATO. And so um, over a, su a successive number of years, Ukrainians have been emboldened and I would argue mainly because of American support to say like, well, we're going to scrap that. Like, we're just not going to do that. And we are, we do have a future in NATO, even though they don't. And that's where me giving you a bet of eating the char pack comes in, right? Like there's just like no way that they're ever going to join NATO. And so what's happened over the last couple of months is that America has continued to support, you know, like Kiev's NATO ambitions, has forwarded, uh, you know, offensive, I would argue weaponry that they call defensive. Mm -hmm. And that has emboldened Kiev to take a very, very hard stance. And now, now that we have this situation, um, Europe is paying for it. And so I don't, I don't see how this ends with NATO being strengthened. I think we're on an in, invariable decline in NATO unity. And I think that the French and the Germans are going to rearm, that's for sure. I think you'll see rearmament. You'll see Obama, Trump, and Biden, they all tried to get them to rearm. Finally, Putin got them to rearm. That's going to happen. But I don't think it's going to be in the NATO construct because clearly the United States has the luxury of being far away. This is not on its doorstop, and it can it can it can play a very very aggressive kind of a game here, um, not allowing the situation to reach equilibrium. And and this is what's happening right now. Like the equilibrium here is going to be reached when Kiev realizes no one's going to help them, right? And then Zelensky is saying this himself. He actually said when he when he said. A couple of hours ago, he's open to negotiating neutrality. He said, we now have evidence that no one's going to come and help us. So we are willing to sit down with Russia and discuss neutrality, provided they also offer security guarantees, which the West hasn't provided us. You think he didn't already know that? You think he really thought that he was getting troops or anything out of the West besides some kind of middling sanctions? No, when he said that, Jacob, he was speaking to the right-wing lunatics in Ukraine. Hmm. 
Okay, so and this is something that in the West no one's going to talk about, right? So obviously there's no Nazis in Ukraine, first and foremost, or neo-Nazis. Like, let's just like, like Russia propaganda. Okay, thanks, guys. Yeah. But, but there are right-wing nationalists, okay? And they've definitely played a role in Euromaidan, and they've definitely been a thorn in the side of the democratically elected leaders of Ukraine because they are putting pressure on people like Zelensky to, you know, like, to oppose Minsk and, and stand up. So what Ukraine kind of needed was a cathartic moment when Zelensky can then turn around to those critics on the right and say, like, hey, listen, guys, like, do you now understand what's coming? Okay, can we just forget about NATO membership now and pretending we're going to be the 51st state of the United States of America, which is not going to happen? We need to go and negotiate with Putin. And this is where, you know, I think this is where the Finlandization of Ukraine, it's such a dirty word in Ukrainian politics. In, in Ukrainian domestic politics, you are basically a traitor if you, if you infer it. You're like a pro-Russian, you know, um, useful idiot. Mm -hmm. but, but the truth is, there needs to be an equilibrium that is sustainable. And what we had before is not sustainable. And the U.S. was pursuing a policy of supporting an unsustainable equilibrium between Ukraine and Russia. And I think the U.S. did so because it's in its interests to kind of, yeah, provoke Russia in some way because the blowback is not coming to the U.S., it's coming to Europe. And I think, so this is where, if you're European, if you're in the French, if you're in Paris or Berlin right now, you're saying like, you know, we didn't have to have this conflict. We could have just put Kiev into a room and told them the truth. But that didn't happen because mainly of U.S. and U.K. support for this membership that's never going to happen. Yeah, and I mean, I think the Trump administration actually kind of overcompensated for their domestic issues with Russia by trying to be really strong and in supporting Ukraine too. So it kind of, kind of was a ramp, kind of lead up there. Although I, I also feel like, ironically, um, I mean, you're kind of describing a scenario in which this wasn't a huge mistake for Putin that he actually has calculated things fine and he's going to get what he wants out of this whole thing and and look good and go home if that's really kind of what he's after don't you think so yes so there there is a scenario where but that's provided that he does that quickly right i mean the, the more this prolongs itself the the worse it gets um but yes that is true if he is willing to disengage the moment he gets those commitments from here um then i agree with you it, yeah. it might not look so bad yeah all right uh last question before i let you go i i've got to run i know you've got to run uh china what what what's China, I I think China's role in all this is, I think they were maybe conflicted about it at first, but now you know they they basically get to do with the Russians whatever they want because the Russians you know are going to be more dependent on Russia uh, on China importing their energy going forward. This is a conflict half a world away. It takes the world's eyes off of what China's doing in the South China Sea and some of the domestic problems they're having in their economy. Where, where do you put China on the dartboard? So you know. Um, what I would say is this, it's clearly a winner, right? I mean, clearly a winner. Um, I think there's an element here where, you know, Russia and China are like two, two young adolescents staring down a cliff into a pool. Mm -hmm. It's a hot, hot summer day there and they want to jump. Right. And China looks at little Russia and says, Hey, I'm right behind you, man. <laughs> you go first. And then Russia basically drops, like, yeah, balls it. And China's like, yeah, any rocks? 
<laughs> you know, how was it? I mean, that's what's happening. Like, uh, I'm right after. I'm coming right after. And then it's like, okay, let's see what happens here. I think uh, China gets so many things to do now. Uh, first of all, um, it seems like Xi Jinping has been involved in actual trying to like mm -hmm. pacify the situation, mm -hmm. which raises the profile of China. I mean, if China just swoops in and like solves the problem, it's going to be such a such a great PR win for for China. Second, as you pointed out, like Russia now has to sell whatever it can to China. Um, the problem with that, though, is there are still infrastructural problems between China and Russia, right? So, like mm -hmm. oil, oil, Russia could divert more of its seaborne trade to China, but it still has the pipeline infrastructure on both natural gas and, and oil that goes to Europe. Yeah, building it out to China is going to be very complicated, especially for natural gas. Uh, it's going to be probably the greatest infrastructure project man has ever undertaken. I mean, the Yamal Peninsula is like on the wrong side of the Urals in the Arctic. Getting those pipes to China, you know, it's going to cost half a trillion dollars as the deal that he signed in 2014 uh, infers. So the, the thing is, I think China is definitely winning, but I don't want to overstate Russia's ability to pivot to China because a lot of its energy is locked into being shipped to Europe because it is dumped through pipelines, which are nailed to the ground. You can't move them to China. They can't wish that they were an Asian uh, supplier. I also think this is a, another reason to kind of question, you know, the Kremlin's logic here. Because Europe is so much better of a partner for Russia than China. Mm -hmm. So much, so much. It's weaker. It doesn't have military capability. It has technology Russia needs. It has the money, it has the insatiable appetite for resources, it's closer. You know, like, why, and, and it doesn't threaten Russia in any way, whereas China kind of does. And you're clearly going to be a junior, as you've described it, there's just going to be, you know, China's petrol station. And I, I don't understand, um, you know, really the, the, the logic in, in pursuing this course of action that so severely severs links with, with the West, especially Europe. Yeah, the last time I was in Moscow, the last two times I've been in Moscow, I've asked kind of Russian analysts, what's going on with China? Why? I don't understand the logic behind Russia's foreign policy towards China. And I was always struck because the answer I always got was something along the lines of China's really unsophisticated. They don't think strategically. Uh, they still have a lot to learn. Don't worry about us. We'll be able to handle the Chinese. And it was the one moment like that I've been in Russia and talking to Russian analysts where in the back of my head, I was going, you're fucking crazy. Like, why would you underestimate these guys? Everybody's been underestimating them for decades. You underestimated them for decades. They're still hanging around. They didn't have to give up the the global proletariat revolution. They're still rocking and rolling. So, I, but I, I do think, you know, we're, we're talking about Russian miscalculation. In some ways, I think the biggest Russian miscalculation of all is they think they can handle China and down the road, they think they can handle India and they think Iran is just going to kowtow to whatever they want to do. And I think they're in for a rude awakening when it actually, when it actually comes to that. Well, oh, that, that's great insight. Um, really great insight. Yeah. There's a lot of arrogance and miscalculation. I think that's seeped through sort of the analytical community, I guess, in the Kremlin and, and Russia. And I, and I think they've, they've ignored their reality of material constraints. Um, you mentioned Iran, uh, kind of to pivot to that. I think it's interesting what's happening on that front. No one's paying mm -hmm. attention, but basically the Biden administration is probably going to rename Minneapolis to Tehran <laughs> as part of the negotiations. I think that's, I don't know if you know, that's one of the clauses in the new JCPOA that we're negotiating. Is it? Wow. Yeah. 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 And uh, 
Um, the Tehran twins of the Major League Baseball system. Yes. No, but it's just interesting, you know, because – and by the way, the, the new squad of Tehran is awesome. I mean, they're just sitting there like, nah, we want that. And also this, you know, uh, because, I mean, you have this inflation, you have this Russia thing. Um, and, you know, like Iran just gets to do whatever they want. We need that oil now. Suddenly, everybody needs that oil. And even the domestic political scene in the U.S. has stopped talking about it. Like, mm-hmm. there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of backlash. Am I wrong about that? Or uh, No, there, there's backlash. I mean, the re- Republican congressmen were trying to convince Biden that they had to approve whatever he was doing a couple weeks ago. He basically said, no, I don't. Um, the, the, the Wall Street Journal, I think, was reporting that one or two of the American negotiators pulled out because they felt oh, yeah, like they were right. giving too much up to the yes. Iranians, which again yes. tells you like the Biden administration told the negotiators, give them what they want. We need to get this deal done like yesterday. Um, and I mean, everybody from the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the headlines are all the same right now. It's like a deal is imminent. So if, if everybody from the left to the right is saying a deal is imminent, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, I think that the last thing I saw was that the, the chief Iranian negotiator flew home to Tehran, the real Tehran, not the one in Minnesota on Wednesday for like some last minute deliberations there with the Iranian government. But I I would assume this is happening real fast. And that's, you know, that could really change the entire Middle East, could change Central Asia, the Caucasus. If like Iran is back from pariah state and is actually going to kind of live up to all of its, all of the resources that it has, like the world gets a lot more interesting with Iran not on the sidelines. Well, I also think it's it's important for a number of other reasons. Um, you know, I've I've hesitated to be long oil during this crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and one of the reasons is because I had fifty percent probability that Putin was bluffing, and I've worried about the downside risk to oil in a world where there's more supply coming because of Iran mm-hmm. uh, and because of the Fed's tightening. Um, I've preferred wheat and gold, so those yeah. were my two hedges for Ukraine. Um, and uh, and that's that's worked out, and I and and I continue to be cautious about oil given given this Iran and, and just the Fed. But, you know, it's interesting, though, because one of the reasons, you know, in the book, when I when I wrote Geopolitical Alpha, like, I started the book by saying, like, look, if, if you think that what I do for a living is tell people what happens after a war, then forget it. You need to read, like, four pages of this book, because there's this table in this book where I say, like, it's almost always a good time to buy when there's a conflict. Right? That's just, we know that through history. And, uh, and one way in which that may not be the case, though, is that when the macro context is so inflationary and you have something like this happen, if it really drags itself out, I could see Russia imposing a self-embargo, mm-hmm. you know, on a yeah. lot of things. I mean, starting with palladium, which they produce 47 percent of, uh, they have about five hundred fifty billion dollars worth of FX reserves, like six months embargo on palladium is three billion bucks. You yeah. know, they, they don't care. Uh, and that's just palladium. I mean, you can go down the list. There's like nickel. There's obviously wheat, but oil and natural gas. And and honestly, they could stop exporting oil for about six months. It would be maybe thirty to forty billion dollars. Again, they could actually overcome that, given their ample reserves and given their huge current account surplus. So that would be a cherry on top of a very inflationary Sunday right now for the macro context that we're in. And, and the one conflict on my table in the book that did produce sustainable drawdowns over the period of the next year and a half was the Yom Kippur War in 73, mm-hmm. which was a very similar setup. And, and I guess that's the danger of, for the markets right now. And, and I see the markets obviously rallying two days strongly. Yesterday, uh, February 24th, we finished with uh, NASDAQ up 3%. And, you know, like I kind of I get it, but I also think it's premature. 
not just because of this macro context and inflation and the Fed, uh, but also like what happens if you know like we're not we're not done here. As you said, they, you know you you have a view they're going to go after Zelensky, you know. And, and what I'm worried about is like what if one of the like Russian Sukhois just accidentally goes into Polish airspace and the Poles like shoot it up. Yep. You know, like it's just like I think there's just way too much premature uh, buy and dip view. Yeah. Flip side, what if one of their quote unquote precision guided munitions hits a major pipeline and they, they get the self embargo just because of their oh, own yeah. incompetence? Like that can also happen. I'm with you. I mean, gold and wheat also, I mean, CI, that's, that's, those have been big topics there. Apparently nickel and aluminum should have been the ones that we oh, were yeah. going after. But I think those panics, yeah. I mean, that's, that's about macro stuff happening with China and Indonesia and all that other stuff. This is also one of those moments where I mean, you probably felt this as well. Like everybody and their mom has texted me in the last two days asking about geopolitics. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, th there's some interesting stuff here. We can talk about the Russia stuff, but there's a lot of other stuff happening behind the scenes. And if you're trying to understand how markets are moving, like this knee jerk thing, like, yeah. th th there's a lot of other stuff kind of going on that you need to understand if you want to, if you want to play. Look, markets, markets were correcting in January, not because of Ukraine, Russia. Mm -hmm. They were correcting because the tenure was going up. They were correcting because of this outflows out of the U.S., and so that's why I would fade the tech rally in the U.S. right now. I mean, like, the tech rally in the U.S. makes no sense. Because if this really does dissipate as a risk, then the tenure is going to continue on its uh, trajectory of higher yields, which will be bad for tech. In fact, the only reason you should be buying tech, honestly, is if you think things are going to get worse in Ukraine mm -hmm. and Russia. Not because they're getting better. That's the irony. But, but even on that front, the tenure yield is reacting the way oil prices did in 2014. And let me explain. Like... 2014, you have Islamic State rampaging Iraq. Yeah. You've got Russia annexing Crimea, and oil prices collapse. And throughout 2014, from January to May, uh, oil prices were flat, despite all these risks. And I remember I was bullish oil at the beginning of 2014. And then, boom, Islamic State takes over Mosul. Boom, there's Crimean annexation. And you're just like, wait, oil is not rallying. Oh, my God. You know, that's when you're like, uh-oh. Yeah. And then you change your view because those were hints to you. That you were in a profoundly bearish macro environment in 2014. Similarly, today, the fact that the tenure hasn't budged and there's potential World War III, man, we're in a profoundly bearish bond environment. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see how NASDAQ is going to do well with the tenure ending this year, let's say, at 3%. Yeah. Because, you know, like all this war, and it, we're at 1.9. I mean, do we, like right now, we're 1991. We're close to breaking to 2% again, despite everything that's going on. And that is a premier geopolitical safe haven asset, and it hasn't acted like it. Yeah. And I think that's something we need to note from here. Yeah. All right. What else, what else should I have asked you that I didn't, Marco, or did we cover it? I think we covered everything. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I think... Uh, we should have done some over-unders. Okay, let's do an over-under. I have yeah, one sure. on top of my head. Okay, right. so let's let's say that um, you know the Kremlin doesn't pursue the uh, the logical. I think you know proclaiming victory quickly, mm. um, getting Zelensky at a table, getting that neutrality, and then just bouncing. Let's say this goes really bad. Yeah. Um, let's say we have five to ten thousand uh, uh, dead uh, Russian troops. I'm going to set the line at twelve months for Putin. Over under. I'm I, I'm being I'm being aggressive. Twelve months on purpose. I'm being aggressive on purpose because I'm going to take the under. 
I, I know what you're good, but hold on. I, I need you to clarify the scenario. So wait, so yeah. the, the variable is, is 10,000 Russian dead troops if Putin lasts 12 months? Yes. Uh, I, I think that impends, I think that depends entirely on what, ha if, if he go, if he loses 10,000, but he gets to Kiev and he replaces Zelensky over 12 months. Okay. If, if, if yeah. he loses 10,000 and we're still talking about the ghost of Kiev and we're still talking about, you know, Ukrainian helicopters still in the air, uh, <laughs> probably less. Right. But it, it kind of depends, um, okay. what, what they actually fair. accomplish, but, but yeah, give me uh, the just under. For the, uh, just, uh, yeah, just for the sake of it, I'm going to take the under, yeah. um, I think history like is really clear. You know, I, I think that's where kind of my confidence is. And um, I think that we've seen policymakers before go over their constraints. You know, you've seen that happen before and it always ends in disaster. The only way it doesn't end in disaster is because you didn't do a good job as an analyst, in this case me, of identifying those material constraints. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the one thing that cuts against that is that, I mean, what's the alternative to Putin? I, I don't think people are going to go go for chaos. I don't think Navalny's coming out of the bullpen, <laughs> like like saving the day. Like he's he's for really sure. neutered anybody but, else who would replace him. But every example I gave you from history didn't involve an alternative other than the Bolsheviks. Other than the Bolshevik revolution in 17, every single other was an insider move. Mm-hmm. And many of them didn't involve like any sort of like violent actions. I mean, they just involved like, hey, okay, you kind of messed up. Sorry, we're gonna go with someone else. And that's that's what I think that um, you know there, there's been some there's been some really uh, weird, strange stuff coming out of um, Russia. Yeah, um, you know, like when he uh, when uh, that that weird thing where Putin went after the SVR head. That's been bothering me so much. I still right. don't get what that's all about. I mean, it was clearly made for a TV event, and it was, I mean, you know, like, I think I, I sh that... I, I, sh I should just say for the listeners, this is when, um, right before he recognized Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, he had all of his security council in a room where he was 30 feet away from them. And he literally just, I mean, he dressed him down. He, he yelled at him, and, like, he, the guy was stuttering, and then he yelled at him some more. It was, it was, it was really depressing. <laughs> yes, and this is the head of the SVR, which is the Foreign um, Intelligence Agency. And what, what, what was interesting to me about that is that it was either organic and it really did happen that way, or if it was made for TV, it was meant just so that people like you and I don't think there's anything like anybody mm -hmm. in there that can challenge him. And I just, yeah. you know, I don't think that's the case. I think, I think Russia is a sophisticated enough of a, a political system that, you know, if 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 this doesn't go well, I, I do think that there could be alternatives. Um, and that would be interesting because I'll tell you this. I keep thinking that there is a lot of value in Russia as an investor. Sure. And there absolutely is. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's where, you know, I think long-term investors have to really be watching this situation very carefully uh, because a shift away from an antagonistic policy could unlock a lot of value for Russia. Yeah. I mean, we were, I, at CI, we were long, kind of Russian equity is a very small position because, you know, I was sort of 70, 30 that there wasn't going to be an invasion. I was even more kind of optimistic than you there. And we took it off after we kind of looked like we were wrong, but I agree with you. I mean, it's undervalued, but the, the, the devil's advocate of what you're saying is the Germans have thought that since Otto von Bismarck and it hasn't <laughs> yeah. gone particularly well for them, has it? So yeah, it's a bear trap. <laughs> Pun intended. Literally, literally a bear trap. I think that's a good place to end it. Marco, thank you so much, man. Uh, We'll have you yeah. back on soon. Thanks, thanks, cousin Jacob. Uh, anytime.
Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, If you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, You can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, We're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.